Now, this morning, we saw something of what the glory of God is. What do we mean by that? And we begin now this afternoon with the question, where do we see the glory of God? Where do we see that? We've seen uh, some of the scenes in the Old Testament with Moses and so on and the tabernacle and the temple. And Sinclair Ferguson is very helpful on this because he likens it to a little pop-up book that you give to children when they're learning to read. You know, if you've got a three or four-year-old and they're getting interested in books, not really a good idea to give them the full volume set of Matthew Henry or John Owen or somebody like that. They need a little pop-up book. And they'll see hmm, a fishing boat pop up and some nets with some fishing. And then the Lord's saying, come, follow me. And they can relate to that. And this is what the Lord, in his kindness, does with us in all manner of things, doesn't he? He's so gentle with us. In his wisdom, he gives to us what we need as we need it. And so he shows more and more uh, of himself. And so we've looked at some of the examples. And, of course, we recognize that now we see the glory of God in all its fullness in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in times past, God spoke through the prophets different ways at different times. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we as Christians totally focused upon the Lord Jesus, eyes fixed upon him, the author and finisher of the, of the faith. And so I want just to think about now um, where we particularly see God's glory. Now, you know, we could spend forever on this because, as Eamon said, we see God's glory everywhere. But I want to mention specifically creation because we've got to mention that, haven't we? Because that is an emphasis in Scripture. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. That's Psalm 19, first two verses. And the psalmist goes on to say, that happens day after day, night after night. Day after day, night after night. It's not like waiting for an eclipse. Could you imagine if that were the case? If the Lord revealed to us that actually in 2026, there's going to be a day when you will see something of my glory in creation. And we'd all wait in anticipation and absolutely be amazed by it. But, look, still there. And it'll be there, uh, unless the Lord comes, be there during the night and, and tomorrow. And it actually tells us something about God. This is what Paul argues in Romans chapter 1, isn't it? Where he says that from the beginning of creation, it's made clear and plain. Those are the words the Bible uses. It's clear and plain that God is and that he is eternally powerful. So we can see something of the nature of God, something of his character, even something the scriptures say about his justice, because actually we recognize that everything reflects the fact that God is and that he's outside the system. So in other words, eternal, even the creator of time itself. And clearly from everything that we investigate and see, God is eternally powerful. And the scriptures say it's plain and it's clear. I've heard a number of atheists, as I'm sure you have, say, well, 
speaking as a fair-minded, sort of neutral sort of person, I just simply think there's not quite enough evidence for me to believe in God. Perhaps if, if there is a God, if he'd have given us a bit more evidence. Now, that's a magnificent comment on the truthfulness of scriptures that actually our hearts are so resistant to God uh, because it is clear and it's plain. It's not an intellectual discussion. It's one really of the heart, whether we believe God or whether we're in rebellion. So holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we want to be those people who recognize something of the glory. It's a wonderful thing not to be childish. We don't want to be childish, but we do want to be childlike, don't we? We know that we have to be childlike to receive the Lord Jesus Christ because it's something of complete trust. That's why anybody of any intellectual standing, uh, anybody with great intelligence or very little intelligence, it's to do with the heart and trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have the Lord Jesus presented to us as the one who is the great creator and we want to have that childlike trust in him and, may I add, a childlike appreciation of what he's done. We don't want to become old and cynical, do we? You know, that you can't see anything that God has done. Um, David Hockney, the artist, he was a Bradford lad originally. I think he's lived most of his life in Los Angeles. But he had a house in Bridlington. You might still, for all I know. And uh, he used to go to Bridlington, and he did a bit of painting in the walls. Very different, I should imagine, to Los Angeles. And I heard him talking once, and he was saying that he went out on this day, and he had a friend with him, and he poured down all day. Now, we know what that's like, <laughs> certainly doing Howarth. It just poured down all day, and his friend had had enough. He said, look, it's just so miserable. Could we come another day? And David Orkney said, well, no, because... The reflections in the puddles and the behavior of the rain and the light on the road, the bit of light that there is, was absolutely enthralling him and fascinating him. Now, David Hockney might have been saved since that time, but he certainly wasn't saved at the time. But yet he had an eye for the beauty. And, and I found that very challenging because isn't it true that sometimes we just fail to see what is so obvious. We've had people stay with us. We had a lovely girl called Bianca, and she'd lived a life. She was in her 20s, but she'd never seen any snow. And when she came to Haworth, it snowed. <laughs> and so she just ran outside with a total joy on her face. And I remember I looked at Jill, and she looked at me, and we were just thinking, oh, no, the snow, you know. And uh, here was somebody who, oh, this is, this is amazing. And uh, we've been with people who had never seen the sea. And uh, really, we took them to Blackpool, which isn't the best place to see the sea. But nevertheless, the joy was there. Now, it's just a plea, this. It's a plea to my own heart that we never lose the fact that when we come out here and we see these beautiful hills and beautiful whales, I've got to say that, haven't I? Beautiful which it is, and see all that God has made, it brings a joy to our hearts. And it should, because even though it's fallen, still it reflects something of our God, the great, the great artist.
<coughs> and so we're to, we're to bear those things uh, in mind and remember that all this is from God. If we live in the city and if we're waiting at a bus queue by the gas works wall in a dirty old town, we're to remember also that if we look at the little lady, a frail lady next to us, she is in the very image of God. And the young fella kicking his heels, wishing he was somewhere else, made in the image of God. And we are thankful. And we must always have that open sense to see something of the great works of God. Because the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, that is something that's stressed in Scripture, so we mention it. We've mentioned, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ having all the fullness of God dwelling within him. But I want to mention as well at this stage the cross of Jesus Christ. Because we understand that the person of the Lord Jesus Christ shows us God as he is in every respect. The words that he spoke, the life that he lived, the compassion in his heart, his concern for justice and righteousness, but also we see God's glory, as we mentioned this morning, in the purposes of God. And the purposes of God come to a culmination at the cross because he has revealed his purposes concerning ourselves in Scripture and everything brings us to the cross. So it's central in our thinking. Just in the same way that Christ is central, then the cross of Christ is absolutely central. That's why Paul was insistent that he preaches Christ and him crucified. So that's our focus. We don't make our own focus, do we? We don't sort of sift through and say, well, what's the priority for me? We come to Scripture and we see what God gives as our priority. And it's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross. So when we see the Lord Jesus Christ coming to that time, when he would be presented as an atonement for sin, as that sacrifice, then that is the place, surely, we want to stop and we want to look. Now, I'm going to turn to a few scriptures, and uh, the first one is in John chapter 12, because we're going to have a look at the Lord's preparation in his prayers for the cross. Now, Bear in mind that if you remember his first miracle at Cana in Galilee, they ran out of wine, and his mother said they, they've run out of wine. And uh, we have to guess the expression on her face. <laughs> but the Lord knew exactly where she was coming from because he said, why, why are you telling me? What's it to do with me? My time has not yet come. When he was in Galilee, and when um, the... His brothers um, said to him, it's the, it's the time of uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now you, speaking to Jesus, you should be up at Jerusalem so that your disciples can see the miracles that you've done. Because at that stage they didn't believe in him. And uh, Jesus simply said to them, any time is right for you, but my time has not yet come. And you can trace the Lord, the sovereign Lord, who knew the purpose for which he'd come and he had his face set as a flint to go to Jerusalem. He knew what the Lord had given him to do, but he recognized the timing of it. It's very important, isn't it? That uh, if we 
uh, are those people who seek to follow God. We want to be in step with him. And the Lord Jesus, as our, as our example, uh, recognized there was a timing to everything that he did. Now, that's gone previously. And then when we get to John 12 and verse 23, he says this. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life and life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. A voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now, I read the whole passage because it's clear there that the Lord Jesus Christ now has arrived at that time in his ministry where he says, the hour which I've been mentioning but has not yet arrived, well, finally, it has arrived. And that hour will be the cross. And he speaks in the context here, it's clearly about his death because he speaks of the grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying. And he speaks of the cross in these terms, Father, glorify your name. And so the Lord Jesus has this expectation that if we're talking about the glory of God, if we're talking about the Lord God revealing his purposes, then it's going to be in the cross. So we've got this meeting together, which is phenomenal. We've got the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as the exact, exact image of the living God, all the fullness of the God in him, and we've got the culmination of God's plans of salvation for you and me. And so we've got a meeting together, and at the cross, we see primarily the glory of God in a way that it can't be seen anywhere else. So we can see the glory of God in creation, but we're limited. We're limited in creation. We can see certain aspects of the character of God and his attributes. But in the cross, we have God manifest in the person of Christ and in the purposes which he fulfills. So in John 17, we see the connection between the glory and cross when Jesus prays. So even nearer his death than he was uh, in John 12, John 17, after this, Jesus said, looking towards heaven, he prayed and he said, Father, the time has come. It's now. This is what... He came to do. And the prayer is this. Glorify your son. That your son may glorify you. 
For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. All in the context of the Lord Jesus approaching the cross. And there we will see this coming together of the glory of the Son, the exact image of the living God, the glory of God working out his purposes, all that he is doing, which tells us about his character. And we have the interaction of the uh, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit where in this great plan of salvation. And so the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross is the great place to see the glory of God. And I'd spend the rest of my time this afternoon talking about the cross if we weren't looking at it tomorrow. <laughs> so in preparing something about the glory, I thought it's the cross. Everything brings us to the cross. So we'll speak tomorrow uh, about the cross, uh, exclusively about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we must understand that our expectation when we sit at the foot of the cross is to see everything in God himself, in all that we consider, that brings glory to him. Glory to the Father, glory to the Son. So, since we're looking at that tomorrow, we're going to move on. Because there are many things in scripture which say, bring, uh, brings God glory, and in the way works. So, it's not just his character. His character is revealed by the way he works and our experience of God. And so we need to have a look at the character of God um, and see what he does. There's a, there's a chapter in Scripture, Luke chapter 10, verse 21, uh, is, has been with me for a number of years, really. It's very precious to me because um, this is where the Lord sends out 30 people, 30 men, uh, sorry, 70. <laughs> he sends out 70 men to preach. And they go to all the places where Jesus is going to go. And when they come back, they're really thrilled to bits because they've seen God at work. They've seen demons cast out. And they come back to Jesus and say, we've seen even demons uh, come out in, in, uh, under the power of your name. And the Lord Jesus just brings them back a bit and says, well, don't rejoice over that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's what's important to rejoice over. And then the Lord Jesus says this, and this is in Luke 10, verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Now, let's think about that for a moment. Because if you can imagine a church situation, 70 men have been out, they've been proclaiming God's word, and they come back and they give a bit of a report, and you say, how, how have things gone? You might hear the report something like this. Well, 
we were rather hoping that some of the wise and learned might respond to the gospel. We were rather hopeful that uh, some of the top folk at the university, you know, and some people influential in politics, and we had uh, an open door there to these people who were really influential, who could really make a difference in our land. But actually, most of them weren't interested. And you say, all right, okay. Uh, has that been a, a, a good trip then? Would, how, would you, uh, how would you summarize it? Uh, did you have any encouragement? Well, yes, yes. A lot of little children believed. Lots of them. We told them the gospel. They believed. Now, if you had a report like that, it'd be mixed, wouldn't it? It would be mixed. Now, the Lord Jesus... In the context of these men coming back, reporting what they had seen, we have an example which is an insight into the person of the Lord Jesus Christ where he is filled with joy. Now, joy was massive in the life of the Lord Jesus. It's massive for us. It's the joy of the Lord that gives us strength. Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Joy is an essential uh, fruit of the spirits, love, joy, peace for our perseverance. And so here we have the Lord Jesus filled with joy and he, he exalts his father and he praises his father, Lord of heaven and earth. So thankful, filled with joy. Why? Because he has hidden these things. Hang on. Why are you filled with joy, Lord? Because he has hidden these things from the wise, but revealed them to little children. <clears throat> what is the Lord exactly rejoicing in? Is he not rejoicing in the way God works? That's it, isn't it? He is rejoicing in what he sees God doing. And it thrills his heart. Now, I want to learn that more. I trust you want to learn that more. To observe what God does and rejoices in how he does it. Now, I trust you've got lots of examples. I was just talking to a brother on the way in, actually. It reminded me. I haven't thought about this for years. But we were talking about evangelism and people coming to church. And do you know what happened to us at Thornhill years ago? We had uh, some special meetings. And so we had a little leaflet to invite 3,000 homes, not just 3,000 people, homes, in our vicinity. And we took them out and invited everybody. So we had a meeting before we went. Everybody was going to take the leaflets around the homes. And we said, look, if the house is empty, put, put one through the door anyway. Okay, because there are a lot of empty houses as well. So put one through the door, because somebody will move in eventually. You never know. <coughs> and so that's what we did. Now, at our meeting where we explained, put one through empty, uh, uh, if there's a house empty, put one through the letterbox there, there was one girl who delivered the leaflets, and she wasn't there at that meeting. And when she went down her street, she had one street to do, then she got to an empty house, and, oh, I'll leave that. Nobody lives there, right? So this has been thought through. And when the meetings came, then one person came 
and you'd guess from which house. It, you couldn't make it up. You could not make it up. One person came and we said, oh, lovely to see you. Did you get a leaflet? What leaflet are you talking about? Oh, we put one through every door. Oh, I only moved in a few days ago. I haven't seen a leaflet. Um, just saw the church when I was passing. What have I done? Oh, that's all right. We're in good time, aren't we? <coughs> so <coughs> she said, what leaflet? <coughs> and we explained. Everybody who got a leaflet, no, she insisted. Now, what's happening here? You come before the Lord and you say, Lord, this is of you. That's just very, very extraordinary, very unusual. And your heart rejoices because you know what God is showing you. He's saying that, yes, work your socks off. Tell people, sow the seed of the word of God to as many people as you can, in as many places as you can. You make the gospel known, but I will have all the glory. And that's what he's saying. And it was so obvious. And so what happens? Your heart fills with praise and you have to smile. Oh, so many things I've had to smile at because you see the Lord teaching us these lessons. And he will not give his glory to another, will he? And so he insists that he has all the glory. So when we're thinking about the glory of God, when we're thinking about seeing how God works, it's very important to us, it seems to me, that we really educate ourselves and recognize that we can see aspects of God in so many things, sometimes surprising things. Listen to Proverbs 25, verse 2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Now, that second part makes sense. That to seek out a matter, this is what human beings do, they investigate, don't they? And they uh, inquire and learn things, so we learn all about the world that God has put us in. And uh, there are clever people out there who say, oh, look, if we use this and if we do that, we can have a microwave and do our porridge in the microwave. And all that is of God. And so people inquiring and investigating and furthering science and all the rest of it, that's the business of people. But listen, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. Now, I don't think I would have thought of that because surely the glory of God, it, it's when we see Christ in his fullness. It's when we see God's purposes worked out like at the cross. It's when he's revealing truth to us and speaking truth to us. Surely that's when we see God's glory. A bit of a surprise in the scripture. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. Well, we're under, we're subservient to scripture, so we've got to sit and think about that and learn, well, how does it bring glory to God when he conceals a matter? And you have examples in the scripture, don't you? You have the example of Paul being caught up to the third heaven. And so when the scripture speaks about heaven... We look up, there's the heaven, it's the horizon, all that we can see, the heaven. There's the heavens declaring the glory of God. And in our generation, we understand that they are gone far, far greater than anybody ever uh, imagined. And then we have the third heaven where God is, where no space probe will ever enter into the presence of God. 
And Paul makes it clear in 2 Corinthians 12 that this was his experience. And he was caught up to the third heaven. And he heard inexpressible things. Oh, what are they, Paul? You, you were there. What did you hear, Paul? Well, he heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. Ah. Ah. Go on, Paul. Just, just a, no, 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 no. The scriptures say the secret things belong to God. But the things revealed belong to us and our children. Reason that we may follow the words of his law. What has God revealed to us in scripture? Everything to satisfy our inquisitive natures? No. He's revealed to us everything and literally everything you and I need for salvation and for following the Lord Jesus Christ, for maturing everything that we need for this life. But in his wisdom, in his gentleness, and in his care, he keeps the secret things. And there, for him. And the more you think about it, the more you think, thank you, Lord. Thank you. To you be the glory, all the things that might ever happen to us that we really wouldn't like to know about this afternoon. We wouldn't be able to concentrate on anything, would we, <laughs> if we knew what was coming. And so it is that it reveals the wisdom of God. Let me mention another thing, and that is God's glory in seen, is seen in his dealing with nations. Now, Ezekiel, if I may tear there for a moment, Ezekiel 39 and verse 21 says this. God says, I will display my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay upon them. From that day forward, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God. Now, we understand that Israel, God's people, they were in covenant with the living God. And he warned them, if you sin against me, then you'll have to leave the land. If you obey me, then I will bless you and prosper you. Uh, but they worshipped false gods and he, ro he raised up Assyria and used it as the rod of his anger. And so the people in Assyria, the king of Assyria, they weren't thinking like that. They didn't say, hey, come on, we've, we've heard what God intends to do with the, uh, with the Israelites. Let's go and um, let's sort them out because that's what... No, 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 no. It wasn't in their mind at all. They were just ready to destroy anybody. But God used the most violent nation on the earth as a chastisement for his people. Now, there are lots of examples of that. But here in Ezekiel, we recognize that God is not just involved with his people, his nation. But we have a number of examples, this is just one of them, where God is the sovereign God in control of the nations. And he displays his glory amongst the nations as he brings punishment and chastisement upon them. Now, we believe in his sovereign God. And we believe that everything 
is under his control. To give an example of that, then in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or you could go to 2 Chronicles chapters 10 and 11, because the incident I'm referring to is when Solomon um, had passed away, and of course the whole nation was united under Solomon, the Rehoboam, his son, uh, took over. And when Rehoboam took over, Jeroboam came to him and pleaded with him and said to him that under Solomon, the people had been oppressed. They'd had a hard time. So he asked Solomon, could you just ease the burdens so that we're not under so much oppression? So Rehoboam went for advice and he went to the old counselors and the old counselors said, if you ease um, the situation with these northern tribes, they will see that as a sign that you are for them, they'll support you, they'll follow you. It's a good thing. And he went to his young men and his young men, don't be soft. Get the jackboot down as quick as you can. Show them who's boss. Rehoboam thought about it and went for the young fella's advice. And so he put the pressure on. That meant that the tribes in Israel gathered round Jeroboam. And so Rehoboam reacted by getting 180,000 armed men ready to go and sort them out and to quench this rebellion until God spoke. And when God spoke, he said this, do not go up to fight against your brothers. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. And you've got one of those little cameos where you can see the sovereign God at work, where things are going in one direction, but the Lord intervenes. Now, on this occasion, we know why, because a prophet had appeared, Abijah had appeared to Jeroboam and told him, he'd come with a new cloak, ripped it into, uh, into bits and gave ten of the bits to Jeroboam and says, that's what the Lord is going to do. And he's going to do that because the his people have been worshipping idols. But he will keep Rehoboam in Jerusalem for the sake of his promises to David. And so a remnant will be left. So God was working in judgment with mercy. Now, that is an insight. But I think we have every right to say that that's how God works throughout the world in any given generation, that there is such a, a thing as a fullness of sin. So the Lord's people came into the promised land when the Canaanites had reached a fullness of sin. And so it was complete justice in the punishment to these people who were doing horrendous things and for um, the Lord's people to settle there. And so the Lord is always at work. We have enough evidence of that in Scripture. Have a look at Job 20. Sorry, Job 12. Because in Job 12, we have Job making an observation. Now, we've got to be careful with Job. It was under a lot of pressure, was Job. And some of the things he said, I don't doubt, he wished he hadn't have said. But here is an observation. What do you think of Job's observation? He makes nations great. God makes nations great. Some thinks it's policies. Other people think it might be one particular party. 
But Job's observation was, God makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. He deprives the leaders of the earth of their reason. He sends them wandering through a trackless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like drunkards. Wow. Hey, Job, wouldn't it be lovely if he could just pop here for a moment? Let's have a look at Westminster. Job, what do you think? Is that how you still think? So, let's go to Brussels. Let's have a look there. Let's pop to Washington. Let's go over to Paris. Let's go over to Hong Kong, see what's happened there. Let's go over to the Turkish border, where the Kurds are. Let's go over to North Korea. What do you think? What, what an observation. Who does it? Who does it? It's God. It's God. He's doing it. He makes nations great. And we know as well what God is looking for. Because it's righteousness that exalts a nation. And sin is a disgrace to any people. We know something of the character of God. He's revealed something of his glory to us. And so do we really expect that we can live our lives on earth really irrespective of what the Lord does, what the Lord says? And we've been saying for many years as a nation, if we carry on like this, just absolutely walking away from God, nay, running as fast as we can as a nation away from God, bringing in laws which are breathtakingly wicked. Will God stand by? No. No way. No way. We've seen that God is the sovereign God of all the nations. And so sometimes we look, don't mind me talking politics, do you? Sometimes we look at the political situation and we say, oh, it, it seems God isn't there. Oh, if only God would come as he did in the evangelical revival. Oh, now, we want people to be saved. But we need to look and we need to think and we need to say, we're not in a situation where God is inactive, are we? Because God's always present. God's always active. Now, we don't know how it's all going to pan out in our political situation. And, of course, there are conflicts all over the world. But we don't know exactly how they're going to pan out. But we do know this, that God is in complete and absolute control. And we see how God works. And when Jesus observed how God worked, even though it meant the wise and learned not actually being converted, not actually believing the gospel, he was unable to rejoice because he observed how God worked. And he rejoiced because little children were believing when the wise and learners, le learned were not. And we need to learn to watch God, to see God, how God behaves. And we need to stand with Job and have a look and say, look at it. Look at him stagger about. Look at him staggering about with no idea. This is of God. This is how God deals with us when people are so foolish to imagine you can turn your back on God and 
reinvent the definition of marriage, reinvent the definitions of gender, and just ridicule all uh, of these things that God has laid down in Scripture. And we see a staggering. And we say, oh, Lord, it's of you. But we can pray like the people in Rehoboam's day. Please, Lord, we understand judgment. But please temper it with mercy. Please. Raise up preachers. Raise up a moving of your spirit so that people might be brought to that stage where they have to cry to you. Where they have to turn around and say, what have we done? We've unraveled how society actually stuck together. What have we done? We had no idea where this was leading. And they might even look to God. That was uh, certainly the Israelites' experience, wasn't it? When they were blessed, they forgot about him. When they were under the cosh, they turned to him. Help! Perhaps, perhaps in God's mercy, our nation might turn and say, help. We've unraveled everything in our ignorance. Who knows? I don't know what God's purposes are. But we do know that we can never say God is not at work in our midst, in our generation, because he very, very clearly is. And we do know where God is leading us. Through all the twists and turns, sometimes he concealed things from us, Sometimes it makes it clear, but we know the destination. So we're going to end in Revelation chapter 21, because this is where God is headed, and this is where we see his glory brought to fulfillment. The journey between Moses and the burning bush, the manifestation of God speaking and the presence of God being known, this is our expectation when in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven, a new earth for the first heaven, first earth had passed away. Peter tells us about that, all burnt up with a great heat. There was no longer any sea. We're in apocalyptic, um, apocalypt, apocalyptic, let me get my tongue around that, apocalyptic literature, which is a genre of literature, and uh, that was popular for about 400 years around the time of the Lord Jesus. And we understand that we've got to read Revelation rightly. And uh, we're not to take it literally. That was never the intention of uh, Revelation. So I understand that, that uh, John was on the Isle of Patmos, separated from his uh, brethren. Uh, I'm not saying that dogmatically. But this is what John sees. I saw the holy city. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. And he uses these two pictures. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is representative of the people of God and the bride of the Lord Jesus, representative of the people of God. All those who have believed. We're not to think of Jesus building a city so that then the church can go and live in it. This is the church that he's talking about. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And so we have the presence of God under his word. God manifest so that we now live with the living God. He will wipe away every tear. No more death. 
no mourning, no crying, no pain. The old order of things have passed away. And then verses uh, further down in verse 9, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the church again. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, the two pictures used for the Lord's people, coming down out of heaven from God. Listen, it shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And we have the culmination of the Lord from his pop-up book appearing in the Old Testament of gently leading us through to see something of his glory, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ so that God in all his fullness is revealed in the person through the cross where we see the centrality of all God's plans to save a people for himself. And then we have the Lord coming again, the resurrection of our glorious bodies and with God on a new, in a new heaven and on a new earth where dwells, uh, where dwells righteousness. And so in this new earth, we are with God, with no tears, with no pain. And John looks at it, and he sees it shining with the glory of God in all its brilliance. And we are not just observers looking at the glory of God. We are an integral part of the glory of God. Because the glory of God can be seen in the likes of us wretched, wicked rebels who are out and out against God. And what God has done is transformed us. And from glory to glory, he's brought us along this journey until we are presented spotless, without spot or blemish, into the presence of the Lamb. And we are in that relationship now pictured with the closest relationship that we know of on earth, husband and wife. And so he, the Lamb of God, is the one that we are married to forever in a spiritual sense in heaven. And here we dwell together in the presence of the Almighty God with him. And we shine the glory of God and the brilliance was like a very precious jewel. And so heaven and the Lord himself, um, how do we describe someone so magnificent? Well, use precious jewels, something that's very dear to people in every generation on this earth. And here John uh, chooses Jasper. Now, as far as I can see, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, as far as I can see, Jasper is a precious stone that actually can be filled with impurities. Up to 20% of it can be impurities. So you find jasper on this earth, uh, any color. It can be striped, it can be spotted, it can have streaks in, it can have veins in. <laughs> so some people have said, oh, did John know what he's on about? Have they ever seen a jasper? A jasper isn't like that. Look at the state of that, shining with brilliance, crystal clear. Oh, I think John knew what he was talking about. Because this world is a fallen world. And so everything's renewed. And so the most precious things in this earth will be so much more precious without the impurities, without the, uh, for the effects of this fallen world. And so all we have is this picture of this complete renewal where all perfections 
have gone, where Jasper absolutely will be crystal clear, and when the people of God will shine. That's our destiny. I don't know what's going to happen about this Brexit thing. But I'll tell you something. God's at work. Because he's got a plan. And through all the twists and turns that the Lord in his sovereignty is bringing us, whether it's through pain or joy, we know where we're going to arrive. We know. And I feel a sadness for dear people who I know who are just really upset about all the things that's happening. Really, really concerned about it. Because as Christians, we can just stand back. I'm not saying don't have a political view. You have one. <laughs> okay. But I'm saying we just stand back. And whatever is going on, we know that God is in control. And we know this is what he's working towards. And so we are experiencing God's work of transformation until we shine as an integral part of the glory of God. We shine with the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, help us to trust you in all that you do. So much that happens in this world, all over the world, is very, very perplexing and saddens us. And, Lord, we feel it's right to be sad because we see your creation uh, really sighing, as it were, groaning, even creation itself groaning in anticipation of this great day when there's a new heavens and a new earth. Lord, help us persevere. We need your power to persevere. But we are so thankful that we sojourners. We're just passing through. We don't live here permanently. We're just passing through. And we pray, Lord, that that ever might be in our hearts and in our minds and that we might look for the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we might truly rejoice in his coming. We ask it for Jesus' sake in his name. Amen. <laughs>